Welcome to the podcast version of Police Science Doctor, the online resource bridging the gap between research and investigative practice. For police personnel who go the extra mile. For academics who want to connect better with investigative practitioners. On YouTube and on policesciencedoctor.com. Right, so the next person, um, she's actually watching right now, Dr. Marla Friedman. So she's um, she's kindly already um, offered some assistance to the police officer in Bangladesh. Um, so Marla is a very, very dedicated police psychologist and chairman of Badge of Life. And we're going to put the link into the comments for you now. So if you're in the US, this is something you can access. Um, she has private practice where she sees clients, police and non-police, and she assists on cold cases as well. She's based in Illinois, USA. So um, Badge of Life, if you want to click on the link, um, just copy it onto your paper. Don't go and check websites out now, concentrate fully on us. You know, we're most important now. Um, so this is a short session because most of her interview actually was solutions. So she's going to be uh, more in the second part. I'm going to play your, her video for you now. I'm chairman of Badge of Life, which is the national nonprofit association for mental health and suicide prevention, specifically for law enforcement. So, um, I train, I teach at the police academy. We, uh, I have a group of trainers that I can send anywhere in the country. Our, our main focus now is uh, training and education about mental health and suicide prevention. All this uh, pressure and stress is building and building. And so I asked chiefs, who do you want on the street? Do you want um, an officer who's depressed and anxious, having panic attacks? Uh, a lot of things that would interfere with their reaction time and plus just disruptive to their life on the job and at home. Or do you want someone who's been treated and then you give them a gun and put them out there? And yet the stigma is still so great. Stigma is uh, lightening a little bit. I notice I teach at the police academy, the younger ones, they're, they're more open. I mean, they'll ask questions in class, whereas when I teach field training officers, um, you know, they've already been on the job a number of years. They, they're not raising their hand. They're not offering information about their lives. Uh, but the young ones, they don't know yet. And they're saying, hey, my husband's got that disorder or this, you know, it's it's kind of a pleasure, you know, to have the, uh, the young ones in there. But it changes over time uh, because soon as they get in the car with their field training officer, uh, the FTO is who teaches them how to be a cop. Apologies, that was um, my mistake there with the editing that suddenly that video became a lot bigger. Um, so that was Marla Friedman. So one interesting thing she said was young officers are more open-minded. Hmm. You know, that's sort of similar to what Rob Hoskins said. You know, they, you know, you come in blue-eyed white or wide-eyed and you want to make a difference. And then do you adapt, do you harden because of what the existing culture is like? And uh, also, I really like what she said um, when she's saying to Chief, you know, who do you want on the street? Do you want people who are at the, on the, you know, at the end of their tether in, in America with a gun and, you know, being in really highly stressful situations where many other people have guns? You know, that's something we don't have here in the UK, fortunately. Um, but or do you want someone who's treated? You know, so who's going to be the better cop? Who's going to be more reliable? Who's the stronger cop? Is it the one who's close to having a mental breakdown? Or is it the one who's actually sorted through the issues? You know, maybe like Janice um, helping officers with building up resilience, you know, being able to handle their stress, being able to switch off, being able to recognize situations and use tools. Um, so I really love that question. Ginny, any observations? And that's actually a question for you specifically in the comments.
Yeah, I, I spoke to, I had the pleasure of speaking to Marla last week, actually, prior to today's event. And um, I love what she's doing. I love that she's going straight to the Chiefs, because as I mentioned in an earlier comment, leadership starts at the top. You know, you want to build up trust. You want to build up that 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 changing culture. Well, guess what? You start with a head man or head woman because they're the person who can change the culture in their organisation. And I love the work that Marla's doing. And she's absolutely right. Young cops come in. You're full of enthusiasm. You're all excited. Um, but to to survive in a police environment, you have to you have to mould yourself. You have to become what that environment asks of you you have to become what the culture demands of you otherwise you won't last you won't survive it um is it right no the culture's wrong and we know the culture's wrong but in order to to survive as a police officer in order to have that career that you've longed for for a long time as most cops do you have to change for it what i would suggest now is we need to change the organization we need to change that culture um for sure you have to have that, that professionalism about you. So, yes, you do have to step back from any sort of emotional attachment to the, the incident you're dealing with. For sure, you have to do that. But there are things we can put in place to support our officers so that they don't have to carry that burden with them for the rest of their life. Um, and I think, you know, starting at the top, leading with the Chiefs is a great way to start. Let's Let's get everybody involved. Let's learn from everybody else. Let's not reinvent the wheel. There's plenty of information out there, plenty of, of resources being done, plenty of research being done. Let's share. And if somebody else in Illinois has learned something, well, there's no reason why that can't work in London. You know, if there's something has happened in Aberdeen, there is no way it, it, it may not be able to help in Karachi. You know, come on, we're all in the same job here. Let's let's pull together. You know, this, this has got to be a cohesive plan. You know, it's no good, you know, New Zealand being fantastic and everybody else being rubbish. You know, there's, there's stuff out there we can learn from each other. Stop being so territorial and start thinking about the human beings that are sat there in uniforms that are struggling and are on their knees. Mic drop. <laughs> yes, New Zealand is fantastic. Sorry, I got, I got, all, I got all passionate there. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> we are very strong on the mental health check-in. So uh, this means that the department has to you know, break through that stigma. And the chief has to say, we have a mandatory mental health check-in, meaning every year, well, once a year, at least, you go and see a vetted provider and you can talk about whatever you want. And what I explain when I'm training is I, I go, the purpose of the mental health, uh, um, uh, mental health session is that you get to know somebody and build a relationship. Because if you're in a crisis or you're involved in a shooting, the chances of you going online and just looking up a name out of the blue, it's just not gonna happen. So I may have trained somebody four years ago and then they're involved in a shooting and uh, they maybe come for the mental health check and, and they know me, then they'll call me. Whereas I know if they didn't know me or someone like me, they would just kind of sit on it and it gets worse and worse over the years. So I developed a program called Chiefs Lead the Way. And what I tell chiefs is, here's the thing, I want you to go for a mental health check-in. And then I want you to go back to the department, go to roll call, say, hey, I had a check-in and guess what? No problem. We just chatted, it was all good. And, um, and I'd like you all to go. And the thing about the mental health check-in is there's no report. Um, nothing goes back to the department because that's their fear. They have in-house, but most cops won't use their in-house. Um, EAP, employee assistance programs. They just don't trust it. So uh, we really push for going to an outside provider. And so uh, the Chiefs Lead the Way program, if the chief goes, then 
it, it doesn't feel as um, maybe punitive. I, I don't know really, uh, or stigmatized. So if they're uh, coming back to the department and talking about it in, in really kind ways, please, uh, then, then we get a lot of calls. Then we get a lot of calls and then we're thrilled. Uh, and um, a lot of them, surprisingly, you would think they come for the one session and out. I can't tell you the percentage of just stay for therapy. Once they get their foot in the door, they're like, Hey, by the way, while I got gotcha, you, I'm having problems with my marriage or my kids got ADD or how do I handle X, Y, and Z? So it's always based on the relationship for us. And so that's the, the, the underlying vision is break the stigma and build a relationship. Cops are used to cortisol and adrenaline you know, just burning up their systems. So I teach them how to release oxytocin at will. I teach them distraction exercises. I uh, also um, find uh, relaxation, some wanted on tape, some I just teach and they're able to do. Uh, I send them for meditation. You know, the, the system is hyper aroused. And so the more control we can get over that and the more the officer has control over that, the more comfortable and the more powerful they feel. And once uh, you learn all of the um, anxiety management skills, well, then you're ready to go. Uh, and so that's uh, that's the best part of it. And I wish in every police academy, they'd have someone in right in the beginning, teach them all of it. So that they enter their career with those in their bag. If they have something more serious, then um, I have specialized training in prolonged exposure. I was, I'll be honest with you, I was shocked how well it worked. I had uh, officers and, and federal agents that came in who had trauma for six years, eight years, 10 years more, and they just lived with it. They didn't sleep, they were um, couldn't eat or overate or smoked, uh, drank, became alcoholics, substance abusers, gamblers, you name it all the things that happen when you don't deal with what's going on in here that, you know, people don't realize what, what that is. I want them to feel empowered that they own these skills because frankly, we should all have them. Look what's going on now. I mean, I'm seeing people again that I hadn't seen in so long uh, based on the pandemic. What I realized in session was particularly with officers, not only, but uh, we have to do a very uh, in-depth evaluation uh, because of suicide risk. So now they don't want to go to the hospital. So they're balancing that with, well, if I tell her, then what's going to happen? And where's this going to go? So uh, when I ask about suicidal ideation or thoughts, and then I ask about, do you have plans and do you have intention? So what I tell them is, let me, let me ask you something. I go, if you had to commit suicide, and of course you don't, what method would you use? Because you said you, you never thought about it even. And they said, well, if I had to, well, I don't know. I said, well, would you set yourself on fire? They're like, no. I go, would you hang yourself? No. Would you shoot yourself? Probably. Would you go in the garage and turn the car on? No, I don't think so. So then I say, well, see, now we started with no when I asked you about suicide. But now we know, just like everybody else, 
at some point in our head, we, we may never plan to do it. Most people don't kill themselves, but we do think when we hear about it, geez, I don't know if I would do that or that. So what I tell them is now that you told me that, I know this is an open discussion for us now. So when you tell me you're having thoughts, it doesn't mean that you're going to act on those. It tells me your level of depression, how upset you are, how your functioning is being impacted. So what I'm asking you is don't automatically say no, because we all have those thoughts. And I had to think to myself, well, what would I do if I had, a, you know, some therapists that I, that I train, I say, be careful how you ask the question. You don't want to say like some, you're not thinking about suicide, are you? Because what you're asking them to say is uh, no. And then you miss the opportunity to gather that information. So obviously most will never do it, but some will, and some will tell you how, and you'll know more about that. And also once you open that discussion, then they know they can say to me, doc, you know, I was, I was thinking about it. I thought it would, it would just be quick and I'd be done, but then uh, it would devastate my family and uh, they'd have, they'd lose my pension uh, if, if they knew it was suicide. So, you know, then they start talking about it and, and that's what I need. I need for them to talk about it. And, and then I can see where the symptomology is and how deep the depression is or any other issues. And then we can focus on those as well. So that's where I developed the no doesn't always mean no um, concept because everyone obviously knows the other one. Most of that work, Internet Crimes Against Children, or we call it ICAC here, um, uh, you know, they're in a bad situation, really. Uh, what I've come up with are some ways for them to manage some of the imagery. So imagine looking, like you said, you're seeing videos of the worst a human could do to another human and that human's a child. And if they have children, it's it's devastating. So they have to find some way to defend themselves. So I tell them when they're looking at that, remember what their job is, it's to identify um, the victim, the perpetrator or the location, depending on what piece you don't know. And if the information is so overwhelming, uh, slow it down, don't watch it in video, take single shots. Um, minimize it, make the picture smaller, stand away from it. I say, don't fall in, don't fall in because then it's difficult to do the job. Uh, but what most people don't realize is it interferes uh, with family life. It interferes with their marriage. Um, imagine them seeing this all day and to be frank, then when they go to have intercourse with their partner, the images pop in their head but they never tell their spouse. The other thing I tell them is if you're watching the video, turn off the audio, then watch, then listen to the audio and turn off the video because the whole thing at one time is, is really overwhelming. And it's easier to get the information if you split it in half. And so they report back, you know what? That is a little bit easier. Frankly, um, most of the officers I work with are just outstanding. And my concerns about not having treatment, not having somewhere to go, not having tools or a toolbox, uh, means that their life will be shortened, that they'll have problems with alcohol. There's 35% increased risk of cardiac problems with officers. I mean, they eat poorly, they eat fast food. Uh, there's just a lot of re-education that has to go into it. 
some really, really good hands-on advice and steps from Dr. Marla Friedman, exactly how I like it. So the mandatory health check-in, the reason why I think and agree that it has to be mandatory because then nobody can wiggle out of it. You know, um, Rob Hoskin was talking earlier about that trim email you get, you may get after an incident. Well, if people can choose to ignore that, they might feel um, pressured to ignore it by the ex still existing macho culture. If it's mandatory, you don't have a choice, you go. And chiefs lead the way. I think this is a fantastic concept. If your police chief tells you, tells the whole organization, okay, I've struggled with this. I've seen things that made me cry. I've seen this, I've seen that, and I couldn't sleep. I couldn't talk to anyone. You know, I couldn't respond to my children. This gives you permission to talk about these things yourself because you're never going to see a chief as weak, you know? So it's so important that chiefs do this and the mandatory health check-in, you know, so Rob, Rob was suggesting once a month, some others suggest once a year, I don't know, work out what works best for you. Um, relaxation techniques, again, she was talking about, and um, that somebody should teach these skills in the police academy. So we need these from the beginning, from the word go. And then he was the practical advice I promised to that um, police officer from Bangladesh earlier about in viewing indecent images. So again, very practical mm -hmm. advice. Ginny, over to you. Yeah, I just think it was a great segment. Some really, really insightful information from Marla and some very, very useful practical tips. Um, I can't add any more to that. It was great. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this content useful. You can get access to each episode's transcript with key learning points, timestamps and references if you get yourself onto my mailing list. Just go to the main website on policesciencedoctor.com and on the bottom of each page you will find a sign-up form for notifications of new content. Just enter your first name, your preferred email address and the type of organization you work for. You will not get any spam. This is just for me to let you know about new content and for you to get access to all the transcripts. Thank you.